Welcome to Let's Talk Sales. This is a podcast for anyone interested in growing sales. Are you a business leader looking to take your career to the next level? Have you ever wondered what it is that business advisors, coaches, and mentors actually do and how they might be able to help you? This episode of Let's Talk Sales is brought to you by our ebook on advisors, coaches, and mentors. You'll discover what business advisors, coaches, and mentors do, how they function, why they might be valuable, and how to find the best fit for you. Be sure to download a copy today. You can find it in the notes for today's show at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod two, 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 kind of a fun number. All right. This is Elizabeth Frederick. And today I am very excited uh, to share this guest with you. He is the founder and managing partner of Breakthrough Sales Performance LLC, an innovative sales consulting firm that approaches the sales process through the eyes of the customer, which is such a great perspective. He created the Funnel Principle System and authored books including The Funnel Principle, What Every Salesperson Must Know About Selling, and Blind Spots, The Hidden Killer of Sales Coaching. He is based in Dublin, Ohio, and this will be his first time on Let's Talk Sales. So welcome to the show, Mark Sellers. Thank you, Elizabeth. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. I am as well. So um, I just shared some of the kind of highlights, the resume items for your bio, but can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Maybe talk a little bit about um, how you got to where you are today, some of the key steps on your journey. Absolutely. So, you know, I've been I've been doing sales training and coaching and consulting for about 23 years now. Wow. Yeah. I have to remind myself, so sometimes it's shocking me. Um, <laughs> The last 12 have been completely focused on my funnel principle book and concepts. And then the last, I'd say, you know, a year, year and a half, I've really been introducing my clients to this blind spots idea, which I know we'll get into later today. The previous, let's see, 12. So the previous 11 years, I was actually a Miller Hyman independent contractor selling and I had a blast. You know, I, I sold the stuff and I facilitated the stuff and, and I think they have a different model today, but it was a lot of fun. You know, the, the people are, are fantastic. It was a wonderful brand. I learned a lot. And what's funny, you asked the journey. So what got me into that was getting fired. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I was working, uh, if, if, you know, if you're in Silicon Valley and listening, it's like, well, so what? You're, you're nobody if you haven't been fired you know, in your life. So um, I was, was downsized, uh, you know, a corporate um you know, new people coming in and, and I was part of a, a, a administration where they didn't want us anymore. So they, they let go a bunch of people, including me. And I was doing sales training at the time. And I said, gosh, you know, what the heck am I going to do now? I had just moved here to Ohio from Chicago about three years before that. I bought a new house. Uh, oh, wow. The second child comes. I've got two under the age of four. And I'm like, you know, the timing couldn't have been worse. So <laughs> I got with my Miller Hyman rep, uh, Mike Joyce. Uh, shout out, Mike. Great guy. And I said, what's the gig like? So he took me in and said, hey, come to come to Tahoe in about uh, four months and you can find out we're having a an independent contractor meeting. So I made that trip and I met Diane Sanchez, who was married to Steve Hyman. And Diane was the CEO of uh, Miller Hyman at the time. And uh they said, sure, you know, knock yourself out. You know, if you want to put in the effort, you think you can do this, we'll support you and, you know, maybe throw you a lead here or a two, one or two from time to time. And I did. And, you know, I, I got off to a fast start. I mean, I was really, really fortunate. I had a lot of support and I liked doing what I was doing, although I really didn't plan ever to do that. I just really not just the firing, but I didn't 
it wasn't obvious like, oh, well, darn, since I've spent most of my career in sales, I might as well hang a sales training shingle out. I just, that never really occurred to me. So I'm glad that things worked out the way they did. And I'm glad I left Miller Hyman in 2007, at the end of 2007, to pursue, to, to pursue funnel principle 100% because that has just exploded. And it just, it means something different to me than, than repping somebody else's stuff. And I'm sure we'll, we'll get into that as well. So anyway, that's kind of how I got to where I am so far today. Thank you so much, Mark, for sharing that. And I love that you um, that you have that experience of taking what must have been a pretty traumatic and difficult experience and looking for something new and something exciting to do kind of based on what you had already been doing. It's funny because our CEO, Charles Bernard, had a very similar um, approach in how he got into this business. Um, he wasn't fired, but he had sold uh, the, the prior business that he was involved in and had really enjoyed the training aspect of being a sales manager and, and just seeing the value of sales training. And so he became a Sandler trainer, which is, uh, you know, a competitor to Miller Hyman and did that for a while. And I feel like what seems to happen to a lot of people when they're in that very structured model is you, you get a little itchy and you feel like I've got some ideas and I can't do them within, um, within this pre-existing approach. And to break out on your own is a big move, but um, obviously it's been really successful for you with the, with the different books you've been able to write, the different concepts you've been able to create. And um, I'm really looking forward to taking a deep dive into those today. Well, it's my life, my journey has, <clears throat> has been one of um, these things happening, whether it's a firing or, you know, we'll get into my, my blind spots, my real blind spots, which caused me to write the book. Um, and then trusting that wh wherever it felt like I was supposed to be going at mm -hmm. the time, I would, I would go there, right? And I, most of the time, I had no idea really what the destination would look like. I mean, but I trusted that for some reason, I felt like this was the right thing to do. I felt like it was the right thing to leave Miller Hyman and leaving on good terms. I felt like it was the right thing to, to really dive into this blind spots experience that I had and eventually write a book about it. Um, I love quoting Suzanne Stabile, who wrote a book called The Road Back to You. She's an Enneagram master, and I'm a big fan of the Enneagram, and I use the Enneagram in my coaching with executives. She says that if she had, had dreamed up the kind of career that she has being an Enneagram master, she surely would have screwed it up. Yep. <laughs> and I think I can relate to that. You know, these things. I'm a I'm a goal driven guy. You know, I you know I love to to to, to define goals and 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 have tasks. I love knowing what I'm going to do on Saturday, on Wednesday. You know, I mean, I just like that. That's kind of how I roll. And there's good things and not so good things to that. But this is one where it's just like I'm really glad I didn't set out. You know, 20 years ago to say, you know what, I want to become an executive coach and, and have some experiences that I can really share with my clients that they can relate to. And I want to write a book about it. And, you know, just life just, I'm learning, life just doesn't always fall the way that you want it to. If you're open to the possibilities, 
then some phenomenal things can can actually happen in your life. Absolutely. It's a it's a funny thing for me. I worked for a small business that failed and it was my boss and a guy named Dave and me. And it was just in, there were other employees but we were the kind of the core team. And it was so demoralizing and just it being part of something that that fails is just it's a gut punch. And I said I'd never work for a small business again. And I got a call from a recruiter about an opportunity. And at the time it was my boss and a guy named Dave and it would be me. And I thought, oh boy, what am I getting into? But you take those opportunities sometimes that crop up. And I've been here now 12 years. And you think of just the, you know, the, the road not taken. Um, and it's, it's really fun when you just kind of let things happen. Um, like you said, I'm, I'm more of a planner, but sometimes life works out in a way you didn't exactly intend. Mm -hmm. All right. So you've touched on two main concepts and we're going to spend the bulk of our time today kind of drilling down into those. You wrote books about them and I would highly recommend people check those out. But um, first of all, you created the bicycle funnel because you felt it was really filling a gap in the way people were thinking about sales process. Can you tell me about that? Mm -hmm. Sure can. Yeah. So again, back to Miller Hyman. So I was doing Miller Hyman for about three or four years. And I started, uh, you, you used the word itch a little while ago, and I was getting an itch and thinking there's something as good as this stuff is, there's something missing, mm-hmm. but I didn't know what it was. I continued to think about it, right? And, you know, to make a long story a whole lot shorter, I con- concluded that we, we did not talk about what we, we sort of really take for granted today in sales training. We didn't talk about the customer buying journey or the customer buying process. And for some reason, that just resonated with me. So, you know, it's just funny how things happen. I had a professor at Ohio State named Roger Blackwell, kind of a, an icon in the, in the, in the, um, in the trade, um, professor of marketing, consumer behavior was his textbook. It's been, you know, redone 15 times. It's like one of those. Mm-hmm. And I recall after thinking about this topic of customer buying journey and decision-making process, I said, you know, I remember the EKB model. Well, that was a model, Engel, Collett, Blackwell, three professors who came together to create this decision-making model. So I got my old textbook out. I found it somewhere and I started looking at it. And, and that just kind of got me on this journey of, of researching what was out there with, um, within the topic of decision-making models. So um, I, I, eventually I concluded there wasn't a whole lot. And what I found was typically related to marketing or something like that or psychology Mm-hmm. And just stayed with that. I said, I really believe that if I'm doing the kind of training, for example, that I'm doing, teaching the methodology, if we taught that in the context of the customer buying journey, where is the customer in the buying journey? I think that our training would have much more impact. And so I created something called the bicycle funnel model, which is a, a B2B decision making model. And it was one of the first, I think, in this in the trade. I was asked to speak at the uh, Sales Trade Conference in San Francisco in 2009 by Gerhard Schwantner, uh, publisher of Selling Fire Magazine. And, um, you know, it was kind of a pioneer at the time. And, you know, I really didn't, didn't think of it that way. I was just doing what I was doing, right? So that just opened the door to lots of fun things because people started to respond very favorably to that. I introduced it to my clients. We then started designing their custom bicycle funnel models. In other words, what? how do their customers go through the the buying journey and mm-hmm. with our model, you know, how do we capture that in a framework, if you will? And um, just one thing led to the next, and we started to get 
busier and busier specifically on that, which eventually led me to, you know, leave and do leave Miller Hyman and do this thing a hundred percent of the time. So, um, it's very simple. I mean, we have the customer buying stages as one part of the model mm-hmm. and which basically define the, the milestones that customers reach again, B2B, the milestones they reach when they make a purchase. And then there's a companion stage. That's a selling activity stage for every buying stage. So we call it aligning your your selling to where the customer is in the buying journey. Imagine that. And <laughs> imagine that. Right? You know, and it's funny. I mean, I, I I do. I think you know. In our our prep call, we talked about my clients. There are a lot of small to medium sized businesses. My clients aren't sitting in California in in the heart of Silicon Valley, and you know, this is really new still after you know twelve years. You know, for to a lot of people. There's a, there's a lot of people, a lot of sales leaders and, and companies out there. They're not familiar with what a customer buying journey is, you know? So thank goodness it's job security for me if we can find each other. But so it's really still a topic that um, can be fresh in a lot of ways for mm-hmm. an organization. Um, and without getting into, you know, into too much detail now, unless you want me to, I mean, not every model is frankly equally good. There are some models that, in my, frankly, my opinion, are just not that good in teaching people how to sell and how to align their selling. And in no surprise, I'm kind of biased. I think we've got a terrific approach to this. We've tested it with 120 global sales teams, and they're the ones telling me this works for us and for our business. So, um, so you know, it's here to stay. And, you know, I've, you know, I've been doing this now. The book was published 12 years ago. And I'm Still getting you know lots and lots of activity today to to help clients put systems like this in place. That's uh, so many great things that you that you said there, and I think you're right in a lot of ways. First of all, I love that you mentioned that the principles of this came from kind of that marketing side of things, where mm-hmm. there is such incredible deep research that has been done over the years about buyer decision making from literally what color box should you put your you know laundry detergent in um, to make people uh, interested in it. Uh, and it, they, they know so much about that. And on the B2B side, there's just been a lot less analysis of it. And so to really think about it, it, what what's shocking to me and, and why I'm always surprised when organizations haven't thought about this, but you're right, many, many, many haven't. They spend hours and hours and hours working on their own sales process. We need to put this step in the process. We need to flag information here. We need to collect this information. Um, you know, this needs to be provided to the, to the delivery team so that they'd be prepared with their forecast. And you literally put roadblocks in the way for the customer. They want information and you say you can't have it until later, or they want to see a demo and you say, oh, that's not possible. And so often we're, we're actually slowing the sale or prohibiting a sale because we're not paying attention to what it is that the buyer actually cares about. No, you're spot on. Yeah. You know, and it's, it is, it's funny when you, when you understand what's happening, then you, you just, just kind of shake your head and say, you know, that's not the right approach. I mean, I'll give you a couple of examples. In my experience, you know, typically in our, our, we call it a, a design workshop. So a client hires us. First thing we do is we design their custom bicycle funnel. But 
that doesn't mean that me or anybody that's on my team goes into a, a conference room by ourselves and gets to work, right? We bring the subject matter experts together, people who know a heck of a lot more than I will ever know about how their customers buy from them. And we lock them in a room and then we facilitate out of them, you know, how their customers buy from them. But a couple of things we often, we often catch when we're talking about the sales process versus the customer buying journey is things like quotes or doing assessments or samples or trials. We, we see a lot of companies that build into their sales process, the quoting, the doing the needs assessment, make sure you sample or do the trial or something. And so in the conversation between a manager and a sales rep, where do you think they go? Well, have you trialed yet? Have you sampled yet? Have you sent a proposal? And what is often missing is, well, why did you do that now? You know, and, and was that the right time to actually do that? And so then they start to see in this in this process that, you know, you can quote too early before you have enough information mm-hmm. and, you know, maybe putting that deal. Well, as a result, then because we've quoted, which is typically a big deal, that deal gets sort of recorded by the sales organization as being further along than when it's not yet quoted. No surprise. So what you have happen is you have you tend to have a fair number of funnel related opportunities that are further along than they really are, just because the thing that put them further along is the salesperson quoted. And that's the trigger for where it goes. So we say, no, that's not the the way to do it. Not only should you not be quoting too early, but don't use the sales activity of quoting as the indicator of where the deal is. Because for, you know, maybe for obvious reasons, just because we quote doesn't mean really anything about where the customer is in their buying journey. They could be really kicking tires. We see it all the time. Or they actually could be quite sincere about, hey, here's a quote. I need a quote for three units. Okay. Then, you know, we still go through the process. Are you sure it's, are you sure you need three? Maybe you need two, maybe you need five, right? So you do that. But after a couple of maybe quick questions, you find out they're ready to place an order. So we got to get this quote out. So the customer could be anywhere in their in their journey when they ask us, hey, can you send us a quote? So no shame on them, shame on us if we just automatically say, oh, well, that means X, you know, so let's send them a quote. So we 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 break that bad habit. And, and I like to say we, you know, in the process, we actually get people to unlearn things because let's face it. I mean, my my clients, like a lot of sales training, you guys as clients, I mean, we're not talking about rookies. 100% of the time, right? These are grown men who have been selling for quite some time. And, you know, they've got the, uh, the the wounds and the calluses of how they sell to show for all those years of experience. So trying to unwind some of that stuff, yeah, that, that makes our facilitation days quite fun sometimes. Absolutely. And I love that you mentioned that, you know, thinking a lot of times it's, it's coming from leadership, this this problem of not being aligned to a buyer journey. And I was thinking about demos and how often it is that either the entire sales organization or even just an individual sales rep feels like I absolutely need to have a demo at some point during the process. And so you might have a customer that's actually ready to buy. Maybe they know somebody who uses your your service, whatever it is, and so that person walked them through it. Or they just, you know, found enough information available that they don't feel they need a demo, but you're actually 
kind of offering slash forcing them to go through that process. And then you've got to schedule a demo and then you've got to get all these other people involved. And then somebody else joins and they notice something that really wouldn't be a big deal you could resolve. And it undermines the whole process. And you could have had a client that was ready to sign on the dotted line two weeks ago. And you now are in the middle of a really complicated conversation during a demo that you could have skipped altogether or had during the implementation process. And so really thinking about, am I listening to my prospect? Am I, am I trying to hear what it is that they need and meet them there? And it's not, it's not about um, you know, necessarily skipping steps in the process. Sometimes it's about just reordering them. But sometimes you can, you can skip entire phases if it makes sense, if it doesn't you know, blow something up on your end, um, because it's not really in the best interest of the buyer. That's exactly right. As you were describing that, Elizabeth, it made me think about uh, the last company I actually did work for before I went to work for myself. We sold infusion pumps that were sold into the hospitals. And back then, again, this we're talking about uh, early 90s, mid 90s. Back then, it was pretty common to do trials. I mean, the nursing, the nursing staffs had to be comfortable because they were the ones going, who were going to be using the pumps and everything. So, but that said, we would see salespeople who would be real eager to have trials going on. And I remember the director of sales, uh, I remember the guy's name, Jim, who said one time to a sales rep, you know, I, I don't pay you to have a bunch of trials. I pay mm-hmm. you to close business, you know? So meaning if you don't need to do trials, then don't do the trials, you know? So you got to be smart enough to know when, again, when that uh, that trigger needs to be pulled or, or not. Absolutely. And it's one of those, uh, sometimes it's tempting because they're nice, visible activities, you know, uh, Hey guys, I got the lunch and learn. Okay. Did we need to do a lunch and learn? Was that an important step in the process? Well, I'm going to be physically there. It's something on my calendar. You can see that I'm busy. It's like, well, somebody else was able to close a very similar piece of business and they didn't have to do that process. And like you said, sometimes it is important. If you're, if you're talking about medical equipment and nurses are the ones who are going to need to use it and they've never seen it before, if the hospital system were to buy it, uh, they might have some very angry nurses on their hands if, if there was something that didn't meet their needs. But at least thinking about it, you know, am I just creating this step for the step's sake? We, we've all seen that happen. I was going to offer something up. I mean, and, and I hope this doesn't come across as a commercial. I don't, but um, uh, I'll throw it out and we can we can cut it short if it, if it does. But, you know, these customer buying journey models, we again, they're the new standard, I call it. You know, people today, if you're doing sales training, or if you're if you're buying sales training or if you're delivering sales training, you really need to understand this whole customer buying journey thing. Uh, you know, Gartner CEB, you know, probably the biggest company, biggest player in the business. Uh, their principal guy, Brett Adamson, uh, beginning of, I think it was January of last year, they opened up one of their biggest conferences and, and I listened to the speech um, online. And it was, he was talking all about the customer buying journey, why it's important to know it, what's it mean, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but anyway, the point I wanted to make is what, what, I, what I want your audience to be listening to if, they, if they're thinking, this is very interesting. So this is what you need to be thinking about when you are deploying a, a customer buying journey model. We have a stage that we, we call uh, the customer commits to buy something from somebody. And that's kind of a super, super strong line in the sand that you could actually cut the entire customer buying journey in half if you wanted to. In other words, everything the customer is doing leading up to that point where they commit to buying something from somebody or they or everything after that, they have already committed to buying something from somebody. Mm-hmm. So it means 
now going to be doing a lot of different things. And when, when you look at, you dumb down sales that simply, I find that with my clients to be a very powerful thing. So, you know, so, but what happens is people will, will often be, to, they will often be confused. They think they're getting signals from a, a prospect that they have committed to buy something from somebody. And therefore the salesperson goes into a mode of, you know, doing post post commit to buy something from somebody kinds of activities. Right. Mm-hmm. So what we teach is to really have your antenna up to know if the customer has committed to buying something from somebody, because that's a huge first, huge, it's not the first milestone, but it is, it is the huge first milestone that a customer makes when they actually do commit, you know, to a purchase, they have to first to commit to buy something from somebody. And it's not always easy to know tangibly if that's happened, but we're less likely to know if we don't ask questions around that kind of topic. So anyway, hopefully that's a value to your listeners. If you're trying to deploy a customer buying journey process, how do you begin doing that? Well, begin by really focusing your efforts on confirming or validating if a customer has decided to buy something from somebody. If they haven't, then that's kind of the first sale you need to make to convince them you know, in a way, convince them to change now, but, you know, to really commit, right? Dollars and cents, commit to change now. If you can win that, you know, battle, if you will, then then you have to, you know, take it home and convince them to buy something from you. But for, sometimes the, the hardest battle is just convincing them to do something different, really, really committing. You know what I mean? I absolutely love that. And it reminded me of a guest I previously had on the podcast. I believe it may have been Craig Elias, but I am going to look that up and include a link in the show notes. But he has a whole concept around finding the right moment where there's an opportunity. And that's that point where somebody has decided, I've got to buy something to fix this problem. I don't know necessarily what I'm going to buy. I like that you said that they're going to buy something. I don't know who I'm going to get it from. So it's from somebody. But I have a problem. I'm not going to deal with it anymore. I'm not going to ignore it anymore. I'm going to solve it. And if you get somebody at that moment and can start to have the conversation to figure out if what you have is that something that they need? That's a really powerful thing. And like you said, that's that's something that's entirely happening on their side. There is nothing that you can do to make them do that. You can help them discover maybe that that's the case. But man, is that a valuable prospect once they've hit that milestone? It is. It is. And uh, and I, I, I admire Craig's work. He's been out there doing a lot of great stuff for years. Um so yeah, it's a, it is a powerful, it's a very powerful concept. And the other thing that it's uh, that I've seen it do is it takes the it takes the attention from the salesperson off of the products and services, which we in sales training we're often trying to to to, to do that, right? We want to focus on what are the needs, what's the pain, understand it, etc. But if you think about it from a, again from a customer buying journey standpoint, then the the, the early stages, um, it's several early stages of the customer's buying journey are completely, completely independent of any product or service that you have. Mm-hmm. In other words, if I wake up one day and I say, you know, and this is actually a true story, Elizabeth, I'm tired of driving this darn minivan. I'm tired of taking it for the team. And my my car, dad's car is a minivan. And I'm sick and tired of driving this minivan. It smells like French fries <laughs> and all this <laughs> and everything else, right? 
you know, if I, for whatever reason, if I wake up one day uh, and do that, it, it's not that I woke up and said, you know what, I've got to go out and buy that Lexus LS430, doggone it. You know, no, it's like, I'm tired of driving this minivan, right? And so, so then what that, the point is, understand what the, really understand what the pain is, what's driving the, this, this, this uh, stakeholder act to actually want to consider changing. It is completely independent of your products and services. So don't, don't get into product service speak just yet. You know, get into, gee, that's, hey, Mark, whoa, that's strong emotions, dude. I love it. But, you know, hey, what's, what's, why now you want to get rid of this minivan, you know? And, and, you know, do you have an idea of something you might want to get into? Or, you know, just tell me more about that, right? Yep. What so do you like about it? A, what do you not like about it? What are your, you know, what do you actually care about? <laughs> that, that's right. It's a Honda and I like the Honda. Okay. Well, that's a start, right? What don't you like about it? Oh, you know, it drives, you know, like it drives like a minivan. <laughs> so yeah, it's a, it's a really valuable tool and everybody out there, hopefully you take the time to, you know, ask yourselves, do we, do we sell that way? Is that the way we teach our team to sell? Is it the way we coach our team to sell? And if it's not, then, you know, check out Craig, check me out, check out a lot of different resources, you know, because like I said, this is the new normal and, you know, you got to get on, get on the train, baby, because this is, this is some good stuff. Definitely. Yeah. And I, I always just like to reference, um, you know, concepts that, that multiple people are talking about because you can tell that it's, that there's momentum around the idea. And I definitely recommend, um, you know, the funnel principle and people really understanding that and that whole bio buyer journey. But Craig Elias, I think he calls them trigger points and there, whatever concept resonates most strongly with you as a listener, um, that's the best way to do it. All right. I want to pivot now to what you've been working on lately. You mentioned for the last one, one and a half years or so, because this is, this is really exciting. And um, it's another big concept that you've been kind of working through. And that's about blind spots. And your latest book is about the blind spots that managers have when they're doing sales coaching. What inspired you to write the book? <laughs> great question. And no, we did not script that, everybody listening. That is a great question. Elizabeth, I tell you, there there are two blind spots um, that are responsible. My blind spots that are responsible for the book blind spots and responsible for me really, really diving into this. And like you said, it's big. You know what? It's big to me. I don't know if it's big for anybody else. You know, and, but it's big for me because I, I'm so believing in what has happened to me in making me a better version of myself, and then sharing that with my clients. That I really think there's. Uh, huge impact that can be had for a lot of people. So the first blind spot for me was clients hire me to listen to their managers, coach their salespeople in this specific conversation we have called a funnel audit. It's, it's a pipeline review. It's all it is. So I dial in, the manager dials in, the rep dials in, and I might listen to three or four of these that a manager does, depending upon how big that, you know, how big that manager's region is or something. I might do three days in a row with different managers. And on one occasion, after doing this for many, many, many years, I'm listening to a conversation. And for whatever reason, I begin to hear the salesperson. Um, I hear the tension in the salesperson. I hear the salesperson getting checked out of the conversation. Mm -hmm. I hear the disconnection between the manager and the salesperson. I hear the salesperson wanting to just say, I'm done with this. I want to move on. In other words, no longer getting value out of this conversation with the manager. 
I heard it for the first time. And you're still like, well, you know, why did you hear it for the first time? Most of my focus for years in listening to that conversation and then we hang up the phone and I coach the manager on how well he or she had those funnel audit conversations. Most of my focus was the mechanics. Mm-hmm. You know, are they following the process that we've taught them and that I'm coaching them? And suddenly I'm thinking, this is really not process related at all. So I'm like, wow, what this manager needs is sort of a, a holistic coaching. I, I need to coach this person, not just to coach this sales process I've taught him in. But then I said, well, that's, that's apparent, but I'm not the guy to do that. I'm not a psychologist. I'm, I'm not an executive coach. I'm not certified in anything like that. I don't think I'm qualified to do it, unfortunately, because I really believe that's what this manager needs. And by the way, as I listen to more and more conversations, you know, that's that that's what all of my managers, they all reach that point where they're just not connecting with their salespeople. So I kind of, frankly, I kind of parked it because I didn't really think I could do much about it. And then I had another blind spot several years later. And that blind spot occurred to me in Singapore. I was doing training and coaching for a client. Had a great day of training with the client and had a dinner with the client. And we both called it an early evening. So dropped me off at the hotel, which was overlooking the Marina Bay in downtown Singapore. I went up to my hotel room and I was thinking, man, I'm, I'm really, really on top of the world. You know, I published my funnel principle book four years before that. Gerhard Schwantner of Selling Power Magazine said it was revolutionary. I'm like, wow, this is great press. Can't buy any better press than that. I got peer recognition. I got clients flying me to exotic places and all this great stuff, you know, on top of the world. And I turned away from that beautiful view of the Marina Bay at night thinking this, turned away from that, walked to the edge of my bed, and I started to cry. And I'm like, what the hell is wrong with me? You know, this, this tormenting emotion of feeling phenomenal, fantastic. This is what I worked so hard for. And yet I'm feeling awful inside for some reason. I'm feeling kind of insignificant. And so I struggled with that for like several months. Um, and I figured out that the, the only way I was going to get to the bottom of what the heck was going on was to face it and to go through mm-hmm. it and hopefully come outside with some understanding. And I did. And I came out the other side saying, you know, I, I've got to got to be brutally honest with, with me, myself. I mean, I've become a really self-absorbed individual. I put a lot of things behind me, um, including my family and my community and, you know, no volunteering, just no, you know, I just had a job to do, right? And I had a, I had a mountain to climb and I was climbing that mountain. And, but I realized that. I faced that. And I said, okay, that really feels... Like, like the biggest confession you could ever have, but what do I do now? You know, there's no roadmap, there's no manual. So I just continued to, to seek help from people who I shared the story with and, and I got some wonderful advice. I read a lot of spiritual books, uh, deepened my faith. And, um, and then I started to, I started to, exp- to expose my clients to my Singapore moment and they were blown away by it. They, I think they were blown away by the vulnerability. These, these are people paying me money and I'm telling them a story right there. So I think they, they like the vulnerability. They, um, they love the honesty. They love the information of it. And, and a bottom line, ultimately, they could relate. Absolutely. And so that, yeah, that sparked a lot of basically, you know, blind spots, uh, conversations with my clients. And so anyway, fast forward, um, 
I just said, you know, I'm a, since I'm a writer and I had all these great experiences, I said, well, I got to write a book on this, which, you know, led to writing Blind Spots. And, and then now I'm going to be hitting the speaker's circuit and doing keynotes and things on Blind Spots. And frankly, just um, in a way, evangelizing this, this idea that um, a lot of people uh, are experiencing things that are getting in the way of them creating better emotional connections with the people that they lead and manage. Uh, I believe it is leaving performance, i.e. money on the table mm-hmm. and about to, to change that for people. Absolutely. That's such a powerful story. Kind of both pieces that you share there, both wake up calls that you had, because I've definitely sat in on those meetings um, where you can see that almost nobody's happy. You know, they're following the steps, uh, especially we see this in sales team meetings, whether it's a team meeting or a one-on-one. And, you know, I need to ask you about your pipeline. And then you need to tell me about your calendar activity. And we've got to dot all those I's and cross all those T's. And you have the, no, nobody wants to be there and nobody feels like they're getting anything out of it. And and recognizing that, that just because you're following a process and it's a good process, you know, I'm not saying you shouldn't have meetings. I'm not saying you shouldn't talk about pipeline, but if you're not actually connecting with people, if you're not really, um, really understanding what it is that, you know, where they are uh, emotionally, where they are um, just overall in a big picture sense, that's not you're not getting the most out of them. Like you said, um, you know, there's a personal connection part, but there's, there's also a production aspect that that impacts. Um, and then I think so many of us have had those moments of feeling, um, you know, am I really contributing in the world? Am I really, um, connected to my, to my family, to my community? Um, am I, am I giving back in some way? And to really not just have that moment of, of despair and, you know, just think, okay, it was, you know, jet lag and, um, and try to blink past it, but to really think about what that meant and, and explore the concept and then start talking about it and writing a book that must've been a really, um, a really powerful journey that you went on and, uh, to, to kind of come out the other side. And it sounds like you, you feel, um, like you've made some changes that have really enabled you to, to notice some of those blind spots and, and develop strategies to avoid them. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's been, I mean, it's it's hard to describe. I mean, it's first and foremost, it's changed who I am as a person. And everybody who knows me will say, you know, who knew me before and who knew me after would, would vouch for that. So that's that's what counts the most, you know, being a better husband, being a better dad, being a better son, being a better brother, being a better friend, being a better, you know, neighbor, all that kind of stuff. And of course, then the, the, the exciting part of it is you parlay all that into, the, the, the consulting and the coaching you do, and you're actually making an impact on people's lives, people who are experiencing some of the, the same things that, that, uh, that you are. And so it's been, yeah, I mean, it's been nothing short of just blowing, blowing me away. Now, all that said, you know, I gave a talk last Friday here in, in Dublin, Ohio, and, you know, you, you, you know, you have to be, people ask us like, okay, what, what do you have to do to begin to see your blind spots? Well, the first thing you have to do is you got to be brutally honest with yourself. Uh-huh. And that's something that comes easy to us, right? I mean, it's so much easier to say, well, of course, you know, I, I flew off the handle because, you know, she's she's just not getting it. And, I, and she continues to not get it. Or, of course, I was impatient with him because, you know, he's, he's not listening to me, you know, and, and he needs to listen to me. Or, of course, you know, I was justified in, in kind of flying off the head because, 
you know, she's, she's got all kinds of problems. And so you, you, you've got to be brutally honest that, that, that you probably are a, a part, okay, and maybe a big part of, uh, ironically, of, of, of other people's behaviors. So if you can be brutally honest with yourself, that that is a huge first, you know, major obstacle to, to overcome. You know, one of my favorite authors, Richard Rohr, author of Falling Upward, great book, several other books, but he says, yeah, the truth will set you free. But first, it's probably going to make you miserable. Mm-hmm. And so you just don't want to go there. Or, you know, David Brooks, author of a, a couple of different bestsellers, New York Times conservative columnist, political pundit. His book last year, The Second Mountain, same thing, journey he, journey he made. He lost his marriage of 27 years. And he was surprised when she said, you know, I want a divorce. He was like, well, what happened? Well, you know, you've been you've been buried in your work <laughs> ever since I've known you, right? And he admits all of this in his book. You know, I mean, it's a it's a public witness, and you know, you you cannot you cannot have this kind of transformation where you just go, oh my gosh, this has been in front of me the whole time, and I couldn't see it. You can't you can't have that without experiencing pain and suffering. So that's the that's the downside. But the upside is man, it is really, really worth it if you have the courage to go there. But again, you got to trust because you really kind of don't know where it's taking you. But you got to trust that by being brutally honest with yourself, you know, that's the right thing to do, right? Regardless of knowing exactly where that's going to lead, it, it can only lead to someplace that's better than when you are not honest with yourself. In fact, I told this group on Friday, I said, you know, the funny thing about this is, would, would any of you call yourselves phonies? <laughs> Nobody would. But when you're not brutally honest with yourself, when you're not, you know, Jordan Peterson, 12 Rules of Life, you know, the you that you think is you is not you. When you keep yourself from yourself, then you're being a phony. And so I, 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 was, I was a phony for years. I would never have said that. I never would have admitted that. <laughs> I would have denied that, but it was true. So being brutally honest, I think, is a great, you know, open the open the gates and just you know jump in and begin to to to, to go on this journey. Absolutely, I think that's just that's something that uh, that most people, at least, have 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 probably had an opportunity to do that. And whether or not you took that opportunity. Um, is, is a big difference, but I think we can always take the time um, just to do some reflection. You know, what are the what are the blind spots that you're experiencing? What are um, the things that you're not noticing in yourself? You know, um, and it's it's always worth getting a better sense of who you are in the world and and having a real sense of that than lying to yourself. Uh, you can lie to yourself for a very very long time, and it can seem easy, but you're going to miss out on a lot. All right, let's um, let's bring this to your specific. Then in the book, um, what are some of the most common blind spots that you see specifically when it comes to sales managers, and what are some big yeah. picture strategies that they can do to kind of resolve them? Got it. So let's you know let's let's define quickly again what a blind spot is. It's it's behaviors that you have that you don't know you have. Obviously, a blind spot that prevents you from creating an emotional connection with the people that you lead. So sometimes these behaviors can be unflattering kind of minor. Sometimes they can be downright destructive and damaging and you have no idea you're doing this. So a common, common thing to think about is it's something you say that you shouldn't say. Mm-hmm. And it's something that you don't say that you should say. Mm-hmm. So let's take the first one, something you say that you shouldn't say. 
So I'm in a conference room with a client, when, um, a, a frontline sales manager, and the boss comes in, kind of interrupts the meeting, doesn't excuse uh, himself for doing that, says a few things, and then looks to this manager who's reporting to him and says, you caused me to miss my number this quarter. <laughs> and I, I kind of wanted to fall under the table because it was kind of random. Like we're in the meeting, middle of this coaching session, so it was kind of random. And it was really like in your face and it was absent any kind of lead up like, hey, you know, let's get some time and talk about the, the performance this past quarter. Hey, let's talk about what worked and what didn't work. Hey, let's talk about what you could do differently, maybe to prevent that from happening next quarter. Right. You know, a, a logical coaching kind of conversation. Let's look at what you did well. OK. And, you know, then we'll figure out what you needed to do differently. But it was absent all of that. But if you had asked this person who kind of barged in, if he thought it was it was inappropriate, if he kind of caught himself like, oh, my gosh, what have I just said or done? I didn't catch myself. No, he would have he would have said, what are you talking about? There's nothing wrong at all with what I did. So I, I call that a blind spot. If it's something you don't say, I'm one of these conversations I'm listening to between a manager and a salesperson. And I hear a man, I hear a salesperson getting excited about a, a meeting that he just got. He's been chasing this prospect down for months, finally got the meeting. I'm getting excited just listening to the to the rep talk about it. And the manager proceeds, this is on the phone, so there's silence and there's more silence. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what's what's going on? And then finally the manager says, Well, is it on your funnel? <laughs> and I'm thinking, you missed you missed an opportunity to like something like, hey, that's great. Seriously. Or wow, what a distance. Or, hey, you know what, um, do you want me to help you in that call? You know, should I be there? Should I not? At a minimum, I'll help you put a, a call plan together. You know, none of that. No, no emotional connection. Uh, so, so that's, you know, tangibly what, what I see. Things that managers will say that, you know, are, are hurtful. We say, just, just like in the home, you know, we'll say something and, and hopefully we catch ourselves later and we go, gosh, what was I thinking? And then hopefully you have the courage to apologize so these things happen in um, in the business world and things you don't say. You got to Mike Bosworth taught me a term tending the conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, the Japanese don't know they're doing this, but but they do this. I spent a little bit of time in Japan. You've heard the Japanese say they say hi, hi, hi. When someone else is talking, they're tending the conversation. If they if they go radio silent and said nothing, that would be just the most extreme faux pas that anyone in Japan could do. So in, what, we, what we need to do is make sure that we are sort of tending these conversations. The, the, the rep says, hey, boss, I just got a meeting with somebody. Hey, tell me about it. Well, you know that guy I've been chasing down for Yeah, I know. You've been working so hard on it. Well, I finally got the meeting. What? You finally got the meeting? Right? It's like it's this back and forth rapport. So what we got to do is make sure that not only should we not say things that we shouldn't say, but we also need to make sure we say things that we should say. So that people, I had heard a manager today say, congratulations. And I'm like privately going, excellent, Tim. That's exactly what you should have said. I heard him say, you know what? You've been doing a good job on this area, by the way. And I'm like, great. He's given this, this rep some kudos. That's what we have to, some people have to really be reminded to do that because frankly, it doesn't come natural to them. So those are just some examples of blind spots. You also asked me, you know, what can we do to, uh, I, I want to say avoid, but you know, it's a journey, you know, um, because blind spots come from kind of how you're wired, 
it's it's and it's impossible to rewire you. Blind spots tend to be a lifelong battle, mm-hmm. but you can do through higher self awareness and people who have high EQs who have a high self awareness. You can catch yourself before you commit the blind spot behavior. So that's what I'm what I'm, what I'm trying to get my my clients to do, not to eradicate it, which is typically an impossibility, but to catch themselves to pause and to have a different response. And as a result, that they that now they will they will continue to create the emotional connection. So number one, be brutally honest with yourself. It's a journey and you have to, you have to be honest. Uh, do you really know how you come across to people? Mm-hmm. You probably give yourself more credit for coming across in positive ways than you really do. 360s are pretty common and they're really valuable. Having a coach who is brutally honest with you can be really valuable. And you know maybe someone who frankly is has a personality enneagram eight types you know they'll tell you exactly how it is they, they just don't care so if you have an enneagram eight friend say hey i got a favorite yeah what do you want you know you know in your face so if you have an enneagram eight friend out there they will be brutally honest with you so those are some those are a couple things you can do try to be vulnerable that would be another thing if you your team is not your therapy group so we're not talking about being vulnerable in certain areas, but to be, you know, Hey, you're having a hard day. There's nothing wrong with you admitting that, you know, Hey, you know, you're having, you're having a hard day and, and, you know, you could thank somebody for asking you how you are feeling, right? Absolutely. Um, You can um, go first. I mean, if you share something about yourself, Mm -hmm. your, your team, you know, in the right settings, they're more likely to share things about themselves in these little moments where they get to know you better they and you get to know them better and you build on that that is a tremendous you know thing that you you can do and i really encourage people to try to you know brene brown i love mm-hmm. everything she's absolutely really a big vulnerability expert so get that audio stuff or buy her books i would say another thing you can do is to stop trying to fix people i thought one of my daughters i have two daughters and a son i thought one of my daughters was a problem to be fixed all through her teen years in high school years. And man, I was, I was ugly. I was ugly, brutal to her because that's how I saw her many, many times. And when I became brutally honest with myself and realized, you know, what, how I was behaving, I realized that she wasn't a problem to be, to be fixed. She was a beautiful gift and I needed to recognize the things that she does so phenomenally well and so much better than I could do. See, I, I protected myself, right? Because she wasn't good naturally at doing some of the things that I could do. Yeah, well, she's got a problem. I didn't stop to think about some of the things that she does really well that I don't do as well, because that would have been admitting that, you know, I've got some kind of deficiency. So once I got over that, you know, ego-driven, you know, kind of perspective, then, um, you know, stop trying to fix your people. It doesn't mean you, that your salespeople that can't do the job <laughs> after a lot of coaching a lot of expectation, you know, they're not your project. I mean, some of these people have to be shown the door, but some of these people that we give up on too early, you know, maybe don't give up on them so early. I love that. And I think that's such an important concept is uh, nobody is ever a problem to be solved. And so often I think it's tempting as, especially as a manager to think I should make somebody be like me. If they don't do something the way I would do it, they're doing it wrong. And 
again, where there is a policy and a procedure that needs to be done in a certain way, you've, you've got to do it that way. But so often in life, um, the diversity around us, the different perspectives and personalities that people have make things better. And that makes life richer and more interesting. And you come up with new and creative ideas that you wouldn't be able to come up with on your own. And so if we try to get locked in by, by thinking people are wrong when they're not exactly like us, we're really limiting their potential and limiting our potential um, by doing that. So that's such a powerful concept. You're spot on. It really is. Uh, you know, we get in this rush, rush, rush. You know, you talked about the, the sales meetings that you've been in. Let's talk about your pipeline. Let's look at your call activity. And it's some of these are uncomfortable meetings. You know, um, sales managers, we know they're, they're all just pinched, right? They're pinched from the top, they're pinched from the bottom, and they're asked to do more with less. So they're, so understandably, they want to get through meetings, they want to get through their, you know, coaching requirements or whatever they have to do. And they do miss out on a lot of opportunity to see differently, to have some patience and time and to step back and, you know, to maybe get more out of somebody than some people think. I mean, I, it's too late to go into to, to a long description. I won't, but I, I think immediately of a, a manager, Tony, that I coached for a few years, he had a team that was tough, really, really tough. And so many people around him said, you need to get rid of that guy and you need mm-hmm. to get rid of her and you need to get rid of him. And he's like, you know what? It's my team. Okay. Let me decide what I'm going to do with my team. If they produce, okay, then I have to put up with what you could perceive to be the problems. But I'll take care of it, right? Until, frankly, I'm not asked to take care of it anymore. <laughs> and he really turned around a couple of people. So I, I, that was a huge lesson for me because I, I was, I'll be honest, I was skeptical. I mean, these were some really hardcore attitudes about things, you know, negative attitudes. Mm-hmm. He was able to turn some of these people around. It was a, it was a beautiful thing to see. That is a wonderful story. And um, you're right, like striking the right balance there is important, but don't give up on people too quickly. You never know who might surprise you. All right. I have really enjoyed our conversation today, Mark. Do you have time for two more quick questions? They're easy ones. I sure do. All right. Um, One thing that we always like to get from our guests is book recommendations. We know a lot of our listeners love to read. You've already shared two, Richard Rohr, Falling Upward, and David Brooks, The Second Mountain. But do you have any other books that you might recommend to our listeners? Um, I would be delighted to. Yes. So I'm looking here at my bookshelf. (laughs) (laughs) There's too many, right? Um, So um, all the Brene Brown stuff. um, I liked her Braving the Wilderness. Um, The Gifts of Imperfection, I think, are terrific stuff. Um, What Great Salespeople Do by Mike Bosworth and Ben Zolden. Kind of a special place for me because it was a a pivotal time for me of where I was in my practice. And Mike was talking about how salespeople need to be vulnerable. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and so I thought that was a terrific, terrific book. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson is a, God rest his soul, he was a pastor for 28 years at a church in Maryland. I live in Ohio, so I've never, I've never even heard Eugene, Eugene Peterson preach. But his writing is phenomenal. Run with the horses. Um, and uh, what's this one called? Sorry. Um as Kingfishers Catch Fire. Yeah. So, and I, and I, tell, you know, I tell your readers this roar um, because, you know, my, my inspiration for this, the stuff to make sales leaders, better coaches and leaders didn't come from reading coaching books. It came from reading other things about, you know, psychology and human nature and how we're wired and why we behave the way we do. If, if we're trying to get leaders to be better coaches and, and leaders, 
we, we have to go to the source. So I think these, you know, the vulnerability stuff, some faith-based stuff, if you're into that kind of thing, David Brooks, The Second Mountain, terrific author, great stuff. Um, I would recommend recommend all of those uh, and, and probably, you know, a dozen more if I had time to tell you, but that's that's probably a decent start, I would imagine. Absolutely. And um, I've read some, not all of those books that you recommended. And just that concept of whether um, whether a faith-based approach makes sense for you based on based on your life and, and your beliefs, um, or, or more, just a more general philosophical approach, if, if you don't necessarily practice faith yourself, figuring out those big concepts and really taking a step back from just constantly talking about business, um, you'll actually have a lot more realizations about business and about your life um, that you can then apply back. If we're, if we're just kind of constantly reading about business and management and coaching, um, you can get kind of stuck in a bit of a cycle. So uh, You can. You can. You know what? Can I recommend one more? Uh-huh. I can't remember. I can't believe I didn't think of this. Henry Cloud. Um, I love Henry Cloud. He's got two terrific books, The Power of the Other and Necessary Endings. I give, I give Necessary Endings a copy of it to every manager client that I ever have. It's just, just a phenomenal book. It's not so much a business book, but there is a lot of business stuff in it. So you can apply it to your personal life, things that we need to end, mm-hmm. you know, uh, vices and things. But he also talks about in the business world how he coaches grown men, grown women, CEOs, chairmen of boards, et cetera, on the things that they need to let go in their businesses. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, it's so easy to pile things on, but it's really hard to let things go. So that's, those are two really terrific books as well. All right. Well, I have been frantically scribbling those down as we've talked. And for listeners who weren't doing that, because you are not in a position to do so, please, if you're driving, don't write stuff down. Um, those will all be in the notes for today's show, which again, you can find at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod two, two, two. Well, I have so much enjoyed our conversation today, Mark. If you want people to learn more about you and your work, where do you want them to go? Sure. Our website, Elizabeth, is www.breakthrough-sales.com. Don't forget the the dash, breakthrough-sales.com. They could even call me, 614-571-8267. I'd love to talk to anybody. We have a lot of resources at our website. We've got white papers. We've got videos. I do a lot of blogging and things on LinkedIn and starting to video blog as well. So check me out and, um, you know, see, see what I have to say. And if it's connecting with you, then, you know, practice it, put it to use and see if you can make a difference in somebody's life. All right. We will include a link to all those places in the show notes and we'll put your phone number there too. If people want to call you, it's funny how, um, sometimes you look at websites now and you can't find a phone number and it's like, just tell me how to call you because I want to talk to a person. All right. Well, thanks again, Mark, for speaking to me today. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning into today's show. You can find the notes and the resources for everything we've been talking about. I'll say it again. I think this is the third time at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod 222. Be sure to tune in on Friday for another inspirational episode where Charles is going to be sharing a great quote that is sure to inspire you. As a reminder, if you have feedback for us, topics or questions you want us to address, um, guests that you would recommend that we speak to, you can reach us at podcast at criteriaforsuccess.com. If you're enjoying the show, please recommend us to a friend and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you're listening. While you're there, please leave us a rating or a review. That'll help more people find the show and it lets us know what's working and where we have room to improve. Remember to follow us on Twitter at let's underscore talk underscore sales. 
Let's Talk Sales is a production of Criteria for Success and is produced by Ariana Miskell, Laura Marchoff, Mark Krogan, and me, Elizabeth Frederick. Happy selling!